0: I'm Paula Weinstein from Tribeca, and I wanted to welcome you all here. I'm a little shaky. Um, it's my privilege to introduce a man who I watch on television every night and met this week, and is as extraordinary in person as he is on television Brian Williams. Thank you. Wow. And I've had, really, the most extraordinary experience as a producer this year, having the honor to produce Ron Howard's new movie. And um, he's great to work with. He's everything everybody thinks he is from seeing him. And here he is, Ron Howard. Sir?
1: Sir? It is impossible to do one of these without sounding equal parts James Lipton and Chris Farley. <laughs> Let's establish that right here and now. And uh, let me ask you for one thing at the outset. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Lipton out on something, and then we'll just start with the Q&A. Hold your applause. This is forgetting what he has produced, these are the films, he has directed Grand Theft Auto, Night Shift, Splash, Cocoon, Gung Ho, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, Far and Away, The Paper, Apollo 13, Ransom, Ed TV, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, A Beautiful Mind, The Missing, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon, Angels and Demons, The Dilemma, Rush, and Made in America about to come out. Also Heart of the Sea, ladies and gentlemen, Ron Howard. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Um, Let's start out with a a kind of unromantic mechanical question, and that is when you read the trades, people are fond of saying these days, this is the big coming contraction. We'll see maybe a few big movies every year, a lot of small movies. How bullish are you on the film business as we sit here in
0: 2014? Well, um, the business... You know, uh, it's it's definitely going through a transition, and what movies are is changing as a business. And so, you know, by the way, George Lucas has always been kind of a mentor of mine. He he was telling me this eight or nine years ago. We're definitely moving toward um, the theatrical experience, he said, being a little more like Broadway, that the big movies coming out in 3,000 screens are playing in better and better movie theaters all the time in order to compete in 3D or whatever other you know format that can be devised are going to be those four quadrant movies the ones that draw a lot a lot of moviegoers whether that's families taking their kids whether it's the dating crowd wanting to go and and but he would then hasten to add there's still a place for a beautiful mind or the paper or you know a character piece it may be fewer film, fewer theaters theatrically immediately to you know, television and other, and other mediums. And uh, um, those stories are going to have an audience, and they're going to continue to be viable. So it's the, it's the business's job to determine you know, what the economic structure is. So it's not as lucrative anymore. It's a little more like doing off-Broadway, when you want to do a labor of love project, which is now almost any drama has right. become that. Uh, And and yet it's still a good business and an important business for studios. And studios are also going to survive and exist. I mean, I did did an independent movie, Rush. I was very proud of it. It was great. I had all kinds of creative independence, which fortunately, frankly, I've had for a long time. But that was there for me. And yet, I still see that there was something really valuable about the unified effort of 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 an entire company working at all ends. To try to make a movie work and and reach its its audience, and so that's not gonna that's not gonna go away. It's all a modification, but then you put in TV, cable TV especially, the internet, and and it's just I think it's kind of wrong to think of it as the movie business. I think it's it's you know it's 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 um, it's it's moving images. It's you can't even call it films, it, it, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, stories stories told in motion, captured, and. Uh, um, and I think you have to be ready to work in all the mediums now as a creative person. They're all viable in, in, you know, uh, on, in, in their own terms.
1: We've seen this through our kids. Uh, uh, you're 60 and a grandfather, which, by the way, is enough to make you check your watch. <laughs> Where did life go? Uh, we, we both have children, and we probably first saw it in our homes, the notion of interstitial viewing of mm-hmm. your work. Mm-hmm. When you're walking through an airport and see someone watching Apollo 13 on their iPhone, does some part of you want to walk over and say, don't do this, don't, please. Go go immediately to a good-sized flat screen with good audio and please watch my work on
0: something. I, I, yeah, I, was, I, was, I was literally flying home the other day and I told Dan Hanley, one of my editors, this story the next day. I said, Dan, I was on the plane. Three people were watching Rush. Isn't that great? Wow. Yeah, three of the people on the all at once. I said, I went to the bathroom and I saw they were all watching it. And then I, 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 I noticed that no one was actually looking at the screen. <laughs> and then I noticed that we were getting time to land and the person was like fast forwarding and just stopping every so, every so often just to sort of get an idea of what happened next. And I said, that son of a bitch is going to claim he saw the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So yeah, I was, I was having to hold myself back a little bit. Um, have, you, have, you been, have you been
1: dragged into the technology era? Social media affects your line of work. Miniaturization of devices affects your line of work. There are a lot of Hollywood studios and actors fighting Ultra HD. Because mm-hmm. after all, think of what that'll do to detail on your sets. And right. detail on
0: actors' faces right. and the like. So, what's it been like? Why fight technology at all? The audience is always going to tell you what they like best, and you, as a storyteller, a communicator, are going to, are going to, um, you know, be required to adjust to that. Your taste, your aesthetic, is certainly going to influence that, and you may choose to diffuse that. You may decline the, you know, making, a, you know, using that uh, that format for, you know, but, but. Um, but do you, to actually decry it, to sort of say, you know, uh, I, uh, we should lobby against it. Even, even, frankly, you know, the whole day and date notion with movies. Um, I, I understand wanting to hold back. Of course, I make a movie as a single sitting experience. It's why I, I, got, I got annoyed with the, the guy. But then I complained to my wife, Cheryl, about it, and she said, are you kidding me? You watch half the things on television that way. Uh, so, you know, we're all just viewing things and absorbing stories in a different way. And at, the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, I am a storyteller. And if I think the story has value, if I think it's interesting, then my next job is to try to understand how best to tell the story and now, what format? Because there's, there's, there's no shame in turning around and saying, yes, I, I like to make movies, but you know where this would really live? You know, the internet. Wouldn't this be great in three-minute segments or something? Or... Or this is television, especially television. Oh, my God. I mean, it, what's, what's happening in, um, you know, in, in, in series television and especially cable is pretty stunning. It's truly, I think it is um, maybe the high point ever in, in, uh, in, in television quality. Certainly, David
1: Carr of the New York Times has written this column. Others have, too. What a great time to be television. It's never been more diverse. Of course, thanks to... Time-shifting, all of us with favorite shows can't name with a gun to our heads what no- time oh. or night it airs. Yeah, well, that's right. But
0: we binge. And, and again, it's a business problem. So a lot of the tension that, uh, that a lot of the the, the, the creative community uh, talks about has to do with uh, the sort of the echo, the, 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 the recoil of the, the, the fact that, that the people who actually make, make it an in industry, make it possible for us, to not have to go raise the money each and every time we want to do, a, you know, an individual project, are reeling and trying to redefine it themselves. And, of course, their job is to deal with quarterly reports and shareholders and investors and so forth. I understand. But there, there's no longer that simple format. And, and you know, for, for feature film directors and filmmakers, when, uh, when, when that DVD um, sort of uh, bonanza... Um, Began to diminish. Well, that that took away that comfortable margin that, that executives were relying upon.
1: What do you what do you like? What do you been, John? What's your daily media diet? Uh,
0: well, uh, uh, we 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 collect up the news. Yes, Thank you yes, sir. You very much. Yes, sir. <laughs> My wife's a big newsie. I think I told you this the other day. It's BBC and you. That's what oh, she watches. That's lovely.
1: I'll I'll speak with more of an accent. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> The um, uh, well, and the Daily Show.
1: <laughs> of course, well, don't
0: we all? <laughs> oh man, it's not.
1: I have to see where my raw material ends up. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but uh, no, uh, you know, well, look, uh, it's already old news. I mean, The House of Cards was 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 great. We're into Game of Thrones now. You know, Breaking Bad was too, was tremendous. Uh, uh, we, you know, there, and it goes on and on. There are shows that, that I that I, w- I want to see that um, you know, I haven't even begun with.
1: My yeah. wife brought me kicking and screaming into Downton, yeah. Scandal, and The Good Wife. I stand before you. <laughs> These things just happen. I turn around. He's 60. I'm 55. I'm watching The Good Wife. <laughs> How did that happen? As an auto racing fan, and not just on the West Side Highway, I have to thank you uh, for Rush. Uh, Because we auto racing fans have scant little in the way of movies. uh, Days of Thunder and Le Mans and Uh and the like. But man, you you brought us into it. You got the essence of the sport, and certainly Nicky Lauda.
0: It was a a great story written by Peter Morgan. We did Frost Nixon together, and, and he's a character writer. And he loves sports but not particularly motorsports. That's kind of, that's where I land. But within this story, he identified this drama, wrote a spec script, and two vivid, fascinating characters, and a world that I knew just enough about to realize that it was visceral um, and could be very, very cinematic. And again, thanks to technology, I felt that, you know, these movies were just too expensive to make and make well. Frankenheimer did it at a time when the sport was not organized so well that he couldn't simply follow a season and get great footage and then use, you know, actually use those drivers, in some instances even the cars. They'd stick around another couple of days and he'd do some stage scenes. It was a remarkable moment, but you just simply couldn't do that with this, the sport today. But digital technology, um, um, what we could, where I knew what we could do with the cars, um, and, um, and, and then also these historic Formula One owners who I didn't know about, were the heroes of the whole production. Because we were an independent movie. We didn't have vast sums to work with. And we began to go out and shoot footage of the cars um, racing in these historic races throughout Europe. And they'd have the real James Hunt car. And they'd have the real Nicky Lauda car. And these are owners wealthy enough to have bought the car, refurbished it, and they actually race it. They don't just, you know, do a few laps and wave. They spin them. They crash them. They compete. And I got to know these people. And they slowly but surely we began to get them to come and, and let us use our cars, not, not in any really dangerous ways, but they couldn't help themselves. They began racing a little bit. But I did remember having to tell the assistant director as we were lining them all up in the rain. I said, "We have our stunt cars, we have the cars that we created, we have a, you know, and, and, and then we have the, the owners and their historics. You, you, you can't just treat them like background players. They're the richest people on the set. Yeah. And they'll just—they'll just—they'll get a text. They'll be told there's a board meeting, and they'll start that little F1 and yeah, exactly. uh And and you know what? They didn't. They were just so loved the authenticity that they were going for that they soldiered on, you know, without complaint. Will you ever return to acting? Uh, I I would kind of like to now. You know what? Uh, well, th- 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 the, uh, thank you. Uh, you know. I acted all my life, and, I sp- and, 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 and mostly in television series, although also in movies. And when I became a director, um, I met my, my wife, Cheryl, and I met in high school. So she, 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 right. we, she's been with me every step of the way with this dream of becoming a movie director. Uh, yes. and, uh, also worthy of applause.
1: Uh, so you're the ones in Hollywood.
0: <laughs> Not a lot of us. But the, and anyway, uh, when, when, things, when I met Brian Grazer, we began Imagine Films. My career was really established. Uh, you know, I, I did. I directed a couple of videos, I did a couple of cameo appearances in people's, you know, music videos, and a couple of cameo appearances, acting, and this, that, and the other. And Cheryl finally came to me by now. We had three of our four kids. And she said, she said, Ron, you know, I, I understood the dream to become a director. I didn't sort of have the mini-mogul thing in my, in my mind and what that would entail, but that's great. You know, you love it, and Brian's great, and we're, I'm proud of you. Uh, but now that we have this family and you're accomplishing all that, how about, how about you don't dabble? How about you don't direct movie videos or TV commercials? And if you actually have two weeks to act for somebody, maybe you just give that to us, because I know how ambitious you are about the directing. And, you know, you, I'd, I move pretty much from one movie to the next. So I thought that was a pretty, a pretty fair argument. So I, I stayed away from it. Well, the kids are all grown, empty nest, now she can't wait to get rid of me. Hey, you want to act? Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you get scripts? Do you get scripts to read as an actor? I, I do occasionally, and, and and I I've even had some, some opportunities with great directors. The Coen Brothers once invited me to do something, and I was doing another movie. And and Marty Scorsese, who's uh, you know an absolute hero of mine, uh, called me one time to ask if I wanted to be in a film, and it was a nice role, and I uh, I couldn't do that as well. So I, I so far I just because I do move from film to film, I never have the time to. To commit, but one of these days I'm going to make the time because oh, I'm uh,
1: so glad I asked. <laughs> um, well, we would welcome you back to the screen, all of us. Uh, and forgive the jumping around nature of these questions. I get. I, I only have the one chance to talk to you. What was it like to act with John Wayne? Oh, especially I, in light of this big new biography out about him.
0: Well, it was. I always say to people, the quick answer is, uh, he he would not disappoint you if you had the chance to to meet him. Um, the very first time that I met him. I was, I was doing Happy Days. It was, in fact, was at its, its height, <clears throat> and Don Siegel was directing The Shootist. And he's a, he was a tough, hard-boiled guy, very liberal guy, um, and, uh, um, and, and it was a very cool opportunity for me. I already knew I wanted to direct. In fact, I had been in film school at USC and left it as Happy Days became a hit. So I was kind of always looking to either get back to film school or finally make my first feature. And um, I, sh- I arrived in Carson City, Nevada. Don Siegel met me, and uh, w- there was no real rehearsal, but he said, you, you need to come up and meet the Duke. So I said, well, okay, uh, great. We walked through the lobby of this casino there in Carson City, and, and uh, the magazine stand was there, and um, a TV Guide was there, and Henry Winkler and I happened to be on the cover <laughs> of TV Guide that week in our, in our little 50s uh, outfit. Well, my little 50s outfit. His cool leather jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, and he said, oh, we got to get this and show the Duke. And I almost went, uh, uh. Hey. well, uh, but he did. He grabbed it. We went in, and the door opened, and it was John Wayne without his hairpiece, but hulking. We shook hands, uh, and his hand just engulfed mine. I mean, it was, I disappeared. And uh, nice to meet you, uh, Mr. Wayne. And a uh, little awkward pause. And, uh, and then Don says, uh, hey, look what we saw walking in. Here you go. And he showed him the TV guide, and he looked at it. Kind of looked at me. Looked at, ah, big shot, huh? Oh. And I thought, well, I'm I'm dead. This is Brilliant. exactly what yeah. I didn't want. Uh, I'm going to be the shooting. Uh, you know? yeah. <laughs> but the the thing that ultimately happened was that a couple of days into shooting, we had some big scenes and a lot of dialogue. And I like to rehearse. And I just asked him if he wanted to run lines. And he said, yeah. And he said, nobody ever asked me to do that. And I and sure. And we started running these lines and working on it. And what was so interesting is it went from this unformed kind of performance. I always kind of thought, I always admired him as a movie star, but I always thought, well, he's a nat- total naturalist. You know, even those pauses and things are probably just him forgetting his line and remembering it again, you know what I mean? And getting away with it because, man, he's the Duke. Uh, but he's working on this scene and he said, let me try this again. And suddenly he'd put the little hitch in and he'd find the Wayne rhythm. And you'd realize that this was a carefully sculpted, shaped performance each and every time. And I worked with, I directed Betty Davis, I worked with John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Henry Fonda. Here's the thing they all have in common. They all, even in their 70s when I was working with them, all worked a little harder than everybody else. And he was still at it. He and Siegel did not get along. He and I got along great, and Siegel and I got along great. So I was kind of in the middle of this kind of Hollywood war the standoff. It was, un, it was not a pretty thing to see. And, it was, and a very good lesson for me um, about communication um, and so forth because just to, just to witness the way they made it through the movie was an um, important learning experience. Well, I'd
1: always heard they named Aunt B that letter for a reason. Um, <laughs> did, did, you, did you interview Andy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's a next snapping transition in, in the series of Chris
0: Farley. What was it like to act <laughs> with Don Knotts? Uh, the gentlest, sweetest guy in the world, and Andy Griffith was the world was the greatest audience for Don Knotts. And uh, you know that show was a, was important, so important for me, obviously because of its success, but also the environment. Um, it was so. It was open, and it was collaborative, and it was fun. And it was the the way in which I learned that you could work hard, which Andy insisted upon. He was very dedicated to try to get this show out in its very best form week in and week out, not to be a kind of a burlesque of the South, but to be funny but grounded, you know, in a very particular way that's never really been repeated. Um, And Don was so much a part of that. But everyone was allowed to contribute to not so much... Had living on the set at all, although Don had a kind of a green light. Uh, But in the rehearsal period, and I get to witness this balance, this sort of this joy you could have at at creating, this professionalism at work, uh, and the fact that the two things were not mutually exclusive. And I, as a child, would sit around and listen to them talking about the script and working out kinks in the script. And I was even allowed to speak up. And I remember that first year, I was six, And it was a little irksome because they weren't accepting any of my ideas. Yeah, well, um, you're just full of notes. And they were rolling right over them. Yeah, no, I think we should skip the (laughs) rock. Yeah, I know, I know. But the second episode of the second season, I was rehearsing the scene where I was supposed to come in the office, the sheriff's office, like I always was supposed to do and say, hey, Paul, or something. And then a line, I don't remember what the line was, but I remember during rehearsal I hesitated and I said, could I say something? I said, sure. I said, I don't think a kid would say it that way. And the director, Bob Sweeney, who had also been an actor, said, well, how would a kid say it? And I pitched my, my, my little rewrite, and, they, and he said, great, say it that way. Okay, here we go, let's rehearse it. And, uh, and I, I remember just standing there, and I must have been beaming, because Andy looked at me and kind of squinted, and he said, what you grinning at, youngin?" Which he actually <laughs> would say things like that. And I, and I said... Uh, well, that was the first idea of mine that you ever took. And he said, it's the first one that was any damn good. Now let's rehearse the scene. <laughs> uh, but it was that environment. And I think in a lot of ways I've tried to apply that tone, that in, sort of inclusive yet yet focused and directed um, approach to the to the movies that I've directed over the years.
1: And I remember as a kid, what do I know? I'm sitting in Jersey watching this show, amazed to later learn that there's a soundstage that you can take a tour of in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, amazed to later learn that the choppers in Mash are flying down a hillside in Burbank. And you've seen all of the ways of making magic. What what still lights your fire, surprises you, what
0: energizes you, since you entertain us. You know all the tricks. Well, on the one hand, digital technology is so exciting for a director. For me, um, not not to be overused, it must be understood. But I've had a lot of experience, and one of, one of the first digital shots ever was actually in Willow. Um, and so I was around. Dennis Murin from ILM was wow. experimenting with computers, and we did a transformation shot and solved the problem that way. So so, um, while I'm not, I don't characterize myself as a techie really at all. I love the fact that I can get so much closer to what's in my mind sort of on the screen than I ever could before. And there was always this, this, this gap. Uh, and that gap is, is, uh, is narrowing to the point where, as Bob Zemeckis says, who's a peer and a fantastic director, you know, Back to the Future and sure. God Roger Rabbit, so many movies, always with a great visual eye, he was quoted five or six years ago as sort of saying, we can no longer dazzle people, it's back to story." And it has to be character and it has to be story. So, but, so I love that. But I'm still amazed by what um, artists do, what artisans do. You know, that there's still a lot of analog work that has to be done. One of the very first things that I remember acting as a kid was on an, um, Playhouse 90, which was done live. Mm-hmm. And I was five years old and I had a speaking part in this, in this episode and I remember walking on the stage, and it was one of these ambitious Playhouse 90 live productions that was going to have different seasons, snow, sun. It had a swimming pool. In fact, I think my character was supposed to have drowned in that swimming pool at a certain point. Lovely. And, and <laughs> because they were talking about drowning, my dad didn't want me to be afraid. And he took me over, and he, he put his finger in It looked deep. And it was only about three or four inches deep. Uh. And he explained to me, that was the first movie magic that I understood, that you could paint it, People who knew how to do such a thing could create the perspective. So as much as the digital thing is cool and efficient and mo- allows you to move quicker on the set, there's still this remarkable thing that happens in an art department that, uh, that always, always blows me away. I love production designers and what they can do. We've
1: uh, seen them both on the screen. Talk to us about your parents.
0: Well, um, uh, both from Oklahoma. My mom passed away about 12 or 13 years ago. Um, uh, both wanted to be actors. My dad, uh, off of a small farm, um, and he was the oldest son. His dad was kind of upset that, that you know, he had no interest in farming. He, and one day, my grandfather put his hand on his shoulder when my dad was about 16 or 17. And he said, Feller, you better find something that you like to do and do it, because you ain't never going to make a farmer. Wow. And, uh, and dad said, well, I'd like to be an actor. In fact, I want to be Roy Rogers. Well, you know, thank God nobody told him that he couldn't carry a tune then or now.
1: He could have but opened he, a chain of fast food. Uh, but that would have been...
0: But he, uh, his, his folks let him follow the dream. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no one drives on the turnpike anymore. <laughs> it's a shame. Uh, but he and my mom met at OU, fell in love there you know, got married uh, during, the, during one summer where they were traveling around uh, doing summer stock productions of Snow White uh, and Cinderella. And, uh, you know, they hit Kentucky, which was the one place where you didn't need a three-day waiting period and decided this was the day to tie the knot. So they did. And they, they only had... It was a low-budget production. They only had four dwarfs uh, in the production. <laughs> um, but they... I, there must have been drinks involved. They became the best man, <laughs> uh, uh, and my mom. They stripped the sequins from the Cinderella dress, and that's what she's got married in. And somehow that led to a 54-year marriage. So, wow, you know, uh, ah, my and friends. my dad has since remarried a fantastic lady, Judy, and so he's been very lucky in love in in, uh, in his life. But they they chased this dream and, and uh, changed the course of the of the of the of the family history because he he knew nobody. There was no miraculous discovery. He just, uh, you know, soldiered through it. And he still is. He's never became the Gary Cooper or the Roy Rogers that he dreamed of, of being. But, you know, he's, he's working as much here at 85 as he ever has. Have anybody seen Nebraska? Uh, well, he was, he was Bruce Dern's older brother in Nebraska. The two guys falling asleep yeah. on the couch, and he had all the cookie lines. And so, so he's still getting great parts. In fact, he's always been very, very competitive about it. And it was always, well, this son of a bitch got my part. That son of a bitch got my part. And... So he's been working so much that, oh, a year or two ago, I said, Dad, God, your calendar is full. I guess, you know, I guess you just must be outliving some of those other sons of bitches, huh? And he, said, he laughed and he said, yeah, yeah, not enough of them yet, though. So he's got the fire in the belly.
1: Uh, of all, of your, your mom's great scenes, you and I were talking backstage, my personal favorite is in her housecoat and scuffies watching her boy
0: go into space in Apollo 13. If they could make a, uh, could make a, a washing machine fly, my Jimmy could land it. Oh, my um, God. Which was a great line written by John Sayles, who was uncredited on Apollo 13, but did a lot of great writing uh, on the movie. And he, he invented that moment, that character, and that scene. And my dad called me up and said, you know, I just read the rewrite. And my mom was back acting by now. She gave it up uh, while she was raising the kids and went back to it and kind of became... The woman who worked quite a bit as the sort of the new little old lady on the sitcom block, I, I like to say. She was getting a lot of parts. He said, You know, your mom would be good playing Lovell's mother. And I said, I don't know, Dad. It's kind of a tricky thing, and what if it doesn't go well? And you know, and it's important, pivotal scene, and she's just only started acting again a couple of years. She said, Well, I think she'd be good. And um, <laughs> So I thought and I thought and I thought, well, this is a very important movie to me and there's a lot riding on it. Uh, I knew I would have to audition her. So I didn't want to do it at the office. So I said, well, I'm going to come by the house and we'll just read through the scene. And he said, oh, you want to read her? And I said, yeah. He said, okay. So I came by. She was nervous and had a little house coat, you know, and was prepared to do it and we went through it a couple of times and she made me cry just because I was proud of her as a son but also I could see she could do it and this was an opportunity and it was just one or two takes on the day of shooting and it was a great a great moment. Absolutely fantastic. Because you
1: uh, actors and people who make the culture that we watch are kind of the signposts by which we measure the passage of time, I think it's germane and important to ask you as someone who is so thoroughly identified as an American and among Americans, a guy who has done it right in life, what do you make of your country these days?
0: Hmm. Wow. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: well, you know, I've been working a lot in, in Europe these last few years. Uh, uh, da Vinci Code was shot entirely in Europe, uh, Angels and Demons half. Uh, the Rush, Rush was shot in, entirely uh, in, in Europe, as was in the Heart of the Sea. So I, I've been, I've been working in European productions, and, um, you know, less, less now with this administration, but I still get a couple of beers into the, you know, the uh, let's get to know the crew and let's get to hang with the cast mm-hmm. uh, evenings, a kind of a, what the hell's going on over there? And there's a sense of, con- there's just a sense of confusion from a distance at <clears throat> the message that That we are sending the red state blue state message and um, and it it is confusing and on the other hand, um, I have a tremendous amount of belief in our in our culture and a kind of um, um, uh, 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 i don 't want well, progressive but not so much in the political um, uh, term but 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 uh, um, forward. Momentum motion, mm-hmm. and I feel that we are a melting pot nation. I think that's an advantage that we hold over many nations who are feeling the pains of assimilation that are you know that are, that are inevitable. We, we might not make it look pretty, but we understand how to build and grow upon that, you know, from that, and in, in a way that's very important. We, we do it culturally. That's what the Made in America festival that Jay Z was curating was really all about was this kind of blending of ideas and breaking down of. Of cultural barriers, genre barriers, so, so I I feel um, that our creativity and our and 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 the fact that we do critique ourselves, whether we like it or not, is, is is still remains our greatest strength. I do find the red state blue state thing troubling, in the extreme, and I do feel that with the zillions of channels and. The, 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 the media and the need to sort of just grab eyeballs, grab attention, it, it, it has this polarizing qu- quality that is dangerous.
1: There's a network that agrees with you when you wake up in the morning, uh, and that's a
0: change since you and I were kids. Absolutely. I remember, in fact, we had a screening of Apollo 13 at the White House, which was a huge honor. Uh, it was during the, Cl- the Clinton administration, and it was the first time I'd ever met President Clinton. And uh, he was talking afterwards. He was just getting, he just announced, of course, that he was going to run again, which is no surprise. Uh, And uh, we were talking a little bit, and I said, any surprises in going from, you know, Governor of Arkansas to the White House? He said, the biggest problem is the polarization of positions uh, on issues. And the fact that it's, it's, this is 20 years ago. It was very difficult for a moderate idea to actually grab anybody's attention and become a movement because people want the drama of polarization. And it's very frustrating. If you want the attention, if you want, you find a way to push your idea more to the right and more to the left. And this is a dangerous notion. As he said to me, you can't run a business that way, a hospital, a school. You couldn't even make a movie that way without finding the common ground and building upon that. Interesting thought.
1: Mm -hmm. We... we are going to include audience questions before we're all done, and we have solicited um, Facebook questions and numerous people asking an anticipatable
0: question. You've been asked before your favorite directors. You've mentioned a couple today. Oh, uh, well, there's, you know, now there are so many. Again, you asked earlier about movies. I, I really believe the creative process is more exciting than ever, and there are more and more people doing great work, and, again, and, and, and yes, in movies. I uh, thought this was a fantastic. Award season this last year. Look at Gravity on a technical basis. Oh, oh it's just uh, you know, it's 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 kind of mind blowing. People all over the world are are are, are 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 making great creative leaps and choices. It's pushing American filmmakers. So I'm you know I'm very bullish on the whole thing creatively. To to further answer that that question, I mean, I really. Um, um, Capra and Ford Ford mostly because of the, of the Grapes of Wrath and while my family were never Dust Bull refugees I sort of related to that story um, and, and, um, and, and of course it's a great book as well and so I, I saw that movie many times and then I worked with Henry Fonda So and, and learned a lot about Ford one of the great westerns My Darling Clementine is sort of sublime you know, in its execution in a lot of ways I talked to Fonda a lot about that then I discovered the populism of Capra and this sort of humor, sometimes jokes, but often, you know, uh, uh, social critique and, and sort of challenging ideas. Uh, Sheldon Leonard, who was, one of the, who was the executive producer of the Andy Griffith Show, was a veteran Frank Capra character actor. He used to talk about Capra, so I was attracted to that. And later, I developed the theory that in many ways, the early Andy Griffith episodes especially, were an awful lot like a Capra movie. They were a lot like Mr. Deeds, or a lot like It's a Wonderful Life in certain, the tone, the presentation, the rhythms of it. Uh, but the first movie that I really studied uh, was Mike Nichols' The Graduate. And that movie played for over a year, went through the drive-in circuit. I, I found myself going to the movies at one in the morning to just see well, it pre- for the 22nd time. Yeah. That, was, that was it. Yeah. That, 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 and But it was... That was really when I learned for the first time what sort of cinema was and the director's role in not just guiding the actors but guiding the look. And I read everything I could read about The Graduate and every interview that I could find. And the transitions and his collaboration with Sam Osteen, the editor, and Surtees, the cinematographer, and the production designer and so forth as a theater director, which is only his second feature film. You know, that was an eye-opener for me, not only the way it spoke to me, but also the the film, the filmmaking. And I've, um, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a movie that I see just about every year or so, and Milos Forman did, you know, a lot of great movies. But today, I mean, Collins, Tarantino, people who put their individual stamp on, on, on movies. Greengrass, who makes you feel like you're there. Um, you know Spielberg, who who takes you on these amazing journeys, you know, and, and has been for thirty-five years. It goes on and on.
1: Yeah, look at the two of the movies we've just discussed. Look at the polar opposites of Gravity and Nebraska. Yeah. New school, old school. Yeah. Uh, one shot in a color LED box, <laughs> the other shot on black and white uh, across the Great Plains of America. Uh. And those were just two of the movies we were given last year.
0: And a film like Nebraska and Alexander Payne, <coughs> is. Um, again an example of, yes, the the industry at large makes it a little difficult to make a movie like Nebraska, but this sort of growing appetite and the fact that, you know, that there is a home for it elsewhere and Netflix and all around the world and it's all getting smaller, if, if he makes it for the, right, for the right price, which he did, it's a, it's a very responsible move to dedicate a year of your life to Nebraska. It's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Um, It's not self-indulgent in any way, shape, or form, and it's extremely entertaining. It speaks to its audience. Uh, And so I'm not sure either of those movies would have been made as well at any other time in the the history of the medium.
1: Selfishly, as an aging male, I'm happy because Bruce Dern made the hair that grows out of your ears fashionable. (laughs) So, that's, uh, so now, uh,
0: now in the makeup artist, you just kind of slap that hand away. Yeah, that's <laughs> great news. Uh,
1: I've I've stopped grooming. Um, <laughs> what foreign movies have
0: impressed you? Uh, well, um, you know, so many. Uh, you know, and again, it, it just keeps it keeps growing. Uh, Hero is sort of one of my one of my favorites, just for its you know just the bravura visual. Um, nature of that uh, storytelling. I was a big Kurosawa fan. Had the honor of actually um, meeting him with George Lucas, who ad- wow. adored Kurosawa, and it was a f- fantastic dinner. And he actually he actually gave me a clue that I was able to use. He believed in um, tr- in creative triangles. So he would write and work very closely and collaborate with 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 two other collaborators because he felt that when you when you when you raised an important creative question, it was great. To, for, for the idea to be voted in or voted out rather quickly. Uh, and that this kind, of, this kind of dialogue was important. He also said something that was very meaningful to me, which is the, that the, the transition from one scene to another was actually the most important decision that a director made, and it communicated more subliminally... Than even the dialogue necessarily within the scene must have made you go back and look at all your work uh, Well, you know, and and to, and to try to to to, uh, to to think about it, uh, uh, you know, so so many. I kind of in in, in doing um, uh, the Da Vinci Code and working with Audrey Totou, Jean Renaud, and a number of other French, uh, uh, you know, crew members and actors. Uh, I really oh, for the first time, began to pick up on on French cinema and, 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 and it become you know, a little more comprehensive. fantastic. the thrillers, the comedies you know uh, I've, I think i 've learned um, you know uh, a, a lot from French cinema in the last three or four years
1: let 's bring up the house lights a little bit. We have two microphones out there somewhere. Uh, I guess they are being brought down the aisle. If raise your hand, identify yourself to one of our microphone holders. I can't see. What branch of the service do we have with us today? Oh,
0: okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. Beat Navy. Beat Navy. Um, First
0: question. Go ahead. Uh, Hi. Uh, My question is, I know you were talking a lot about the changing technology of entertainment. Uh, I was wondering if there's anything that you've worked on that you have felt. You could improve upon with uh, with the changing technology. Wow. Uh, well, in some in some form or another, you know, probably probably all of them. There were there were only a few digital shots in Apollo 13. We used models, uh, and for a long time, you know, I stuck with the idea that that analog, you know, approach was you know was could not be not be duplicated digitally, but it could be now. Uh, and it would, it would look as real. I think the, the challenge when you're working um, w- with digital imagery is, in fact, to, to try to understand where to put the camera so that you don't sort of break down the, the, the viability of that image. Right. Uh, the fact that you can put the camera anywhere doesn't mean that you should.
1: So when the command module explodes, you cut to the outside of the spacecraft. Was that among the digital shots?
0: And, uh, only some of the particles. Okay. O- otherwise, we, we actually blew up a little model. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, Not that I've seen it too many times. I was there. <laughs> uh, Question from over here.
0: Uh, first, I'd like to say that as a film studies graduate and fan of your career, it is an fortunate honor to attend this event. <laughs> um, I'm actually related to Andy Griffith show writer Bob Ross, who, was, uh, who named the character Clara Edwards after my great-great-grandmother. Uh, one of his episodes was the season five premiere, Opie Loves Helen, which begins to show your transition from young boy to
1: adolescent. You've spoken a lot about your own transition from child
0: to adult actor. Do you believe that the success was in part due to how the show handled uh, your own growing up and Opie's growing up? Well, I, I was... Uh, my dad is a, kind of a... He's a great father and a kind of a genius acting teacher, although he never did that professionally. But from, from very early on, he was actually giving me good fundamentals, listening to the other actors, understanding the scene. But I also, because he's an actor, you know, I also always understood that we were, we were creating something. So yeah, lots of times the sort of the, the life lessons, the morals of those stories would, would resonate with me. Would I, you know, they'd, 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 they'd stir some, some, some questions and, and some conversations. And sometimes it would be, well, no, this is a TV show. Life doesn't work that way. And sometimes it would be, yes, that's a good principle. That's a good idea. Uh, but, <clears throat> um, you know, I, it was important for me to always understand where, who my family was and, and wasn 't fortunately, my father was around a lot, so I never had any confusion about that, uh, but in some way or another, I was kind of always playing a version of myself, uh, and so um, there were a lot of moments where you know I was drawing upon it as, a, as an actor as an actor uh, does, but Bob Ross, fantastic guy, he came in after Aaron Rubin, who was the first uh, showrunner and producer, and Bob took over and, uh, and, and carried on and was a fantastic creative force. As
1: I, it would be uncomfortable, but if, if our country put together a time capsule, uh, your work would have to be in it, if not you, yourself. You, <laughs> the, uh, and it strikes me, you know, the great Nebraskan Johnny Carson was great because no matter how nice his life got, he knew his customers. Mm-hmm. He knew his fellow Americans. No matter how nice your life has gotten, you've never lost touch with your country. You know your customers. You know America and Americans. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. critically important. Right. So you're not talking to some small community.
0: Well, I, I, I think I've been fortunate. People um, come up and they, they ask me if I think a movie is gonna, that I'm working on is going to be a hit. and. The, the honest reality is I've been wrong more than I've been right when it comes to that guess. And the ones I've been wrong about have often turned out to be the hits. Uh, Brian Grazer has a great nose for that. And I mean, a great head of hair. And a fantastic head of hair, which, <laughs> weirdly enough, he's, well, you've met him, he's so energized, he does not need gel. It no, actually it just, does that. But He's like Bellow with the... But he has a really brilliant sense of, of, uh, of what can work and a great marketing eye. I... Do, I in, I kind of invest myself in a story. And I do go with, do I want to see it? And and I do follow my own curiosity, um, creative, intuitive curiosity, and also intellectual. And, uh, and, and my instincts um, have aligned, and interests have aligned myself with the audience, you know, more often than not. And that's, m- that's, my, that's kind of my good fortune, because I don't choose something unless I think I have a some personal understanding something that I can offer. It's not always thematic. I wanted to do The Grinch because I wanted to direct Jim Carrey creating that kind of comic fantasy character live. I just thought that would be a mind-blowing experience, and it, it creatively was. It's one of the highlights. Yeah.
1: I think it all goes back to your parents being from, uh, uh, you know, the hard land of Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes, question on the uh, third in on the aisle? Oh, my goodness, sorry. And then we'll, we'll call this
0: the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an independent filmmaker myself, and I've been fi- even though I'm in my 20s, I've still been following your work and revisiting some of it. And my question goes back to when you first started directing, the transition from an actor to director. I know you spoke on it just a little bit, but mm-hmm. I know you started directing a couple shorts and then went into the feature of Grand Theft Auto. Can you talk a little bit about the the, uh, the issues and the problems and the this is stuff that you had to overcome sure. making that transition? Okay, quickly, I mean, it's... Uh uh, at that time, TV actors, particularly kids off of sitcoms, were not—you know—that that wasn't that wasn't the ground, the fertile ground they were looking to to recruit directors. Um, uh, there, there, uh, there weren't very many. Alan Alda did some directing, yeah. um, and Rob Reiner, um, and but it was it was it was kind of unusual. So I really had to blackmail why, my way into my first directing opportunity. Uh, Roger Corman, famous B-movie director, but also started the careers of Scorsese and Vandanovich and Francis Coppola. Uh, You know, he wanted me to act in a movie called Eat My Dust. And this was after American Graffiti was a big hit and Happy Days was becoming a top 10 show. And uh, um, I had a script that I would written that I wanted to make. It was a character study. I thought maybe I'd raised half of the $300,000 budget to, to get it made. I needed distribution. I told my agent, please don't come with me to this meeting, which was hard to do when you're 21 and you tell your veteran agent to, you know, I'm, going, I'm taking this one on my own. Uh, and I, because I wasn't going in there to talk about money, I was going in to talk about my dream. And I went in to Roger Corman and I said, to be honest, I've ready my dust and, um, uh, and uh, it's not very good uh, <laughs> in my mind. But, uh, but, but... I know that you're the one person who will give first-time directors a chance. Please read this script, and if you'll co-finance this, I'll act and eat my dust. And allow me to direct, and I had some student films that I could show him and things like that. And he read the script, and he said, well, this is like an art house movie. This is a character piece, not what I do. But if you do eat my dust, I will let you write a script for a movie. If, that, if I like that, I'll let you make it. If, none, if, all, if, if that all fails... Then um, you know, I'll let you direct the car crashes or a second unit or something on another movie. And Eat My Dust was a big hit, and I started going in there and pitching him a lot of different ideas. And finally he said to me one day, he, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, oh, genre movies, noir, or sci-fi. Finally he said, Eat My Dust was a car crash comedy about young people on the run. When we were testing titles for Eat My Dust, there was another title that came in a very close second. Grand Theft Auto if you can fashion a car crash comedy about young people on the run that we can entitle Grand Theft Auto, I'd let you direct that picture. (laughs) So I I had an outline for him, and about 15 minutes later, uh, and I got to make that movie. But the big challenge for me was to kind of get over this idea that I was the youngest person on the set. That one I began directing the day after my 23rd birthday. A couple of years later, I was making progress, doing television movies as a director and a producer, and I had an opportunity, a script... To, to cast Betty Davis in a movie that GE was going to uh, was going to sponsor, uh, and it was based on a true story about a paraplegic girl who dreamed of flying, and Betty Davis was playing this this sort of crusty aerobatic pilot who would eventually be her teacher, uh, and uh, and uh, Betty Davis loved the script written by Nancy Sackett, and really did not like the idea to, that I wanted to cast a, a, a real disabled. Uh, person in the role. She, she wanted a veteran actress. And she also didn't much like that there was this, this you know, 25-year-old from a sitcom that was going to be directing her. Um, I was talking to her on the phone. And I said... Uh, well, Ms. Davis, I've, I've, you know, I've heard what you've said, but I really believe Susie Gilstrap, this girl that we found, can really can succeed in this role. I'll protect you as the director. I'm going to make sure that she's prepared and that you are covered and, and your, your your performance will not suffer. And she says, well, I, I disagree, Ron, but... No, uh, she just... I, I disagree, Mr. Howard. In fact, she kept calling me Mr. Howard. Uh, and uh, I disagree, and... Uh, uh, You know, but I don't think there's much I can do because, unfortunately, I like your script and I want to do the movie. Um, And I said, well, that's very good news, Miss Davis. And she said, well, I hope you think it's good news, Mr. Howard. And I said, Miss Davis, please just call me Ron. And she said, no, I will call you Mr. Howard until I decide whether I like you or not. And hung up. (laughs) So, So the first day of filming, I had seen pictures of William Wyler, her favorite director, always wore a suit and tie on the set. We were shooting in Plano, Texas, in August. It was hot, out on an airfield. But I decided to wear a suit and a tie. And, and Betty Davis began, and the first scene she had to do in this little mock-up of the plane where we were pretending to make it look like it was, she was flying aerobatics. She was a little confused by the whole thing. So I went up in my jacket and my tie to give her my first direction. And she turned around and went, ah, oh, ah. And then, you know, very loud for the whole crew to hear. She said, oh my god, I saw this child walking toward me. <laughs> And I, you know, I couldn't help but wonder, what, what could this child, you know, have of any consequence to say to me? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so I went, ha, 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 and gave her the direction, and I turned back, you know, I was popping Tums on the way back to the camera. But she, she sort of did the direction, you know, and we were kind of working our way through the day, and it was still Mr. Howard, Mr. Howard, Mr. Howard. And finally we got to a pivotal moment in a scene where she was once again, uh, staging was a little awkward, and I gave her a note. And I said, Miss Davis, I think the timing would be better for you here if you'd hel- hold that line until you get to the table, then you pick up the prop, then say the line, and then I would say the other one on the way out the door. It, 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 I think you'd feel it will flow a little bit better. And she said, oh, I don't think so, Ron. I think to to be very awkward. And I said, well, please try it. And she said, of course I'll try it, because I'm always the director's kid. Ha, 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 ha. So she did it. And she tried it. And it worked for her. And on the on that rehearsal, she said, "You're right. That works much better. Let's shoot." So we did. We made it through the day, you know. And finally, I went up to Miss Davis, the end of the whole thing, and I said, uh, "Well, uh, Miss Davis, great first day. You're wrapped. Uh, you know, I'll see you tomorrow." And she sort of stubbed out her camel cigarette, and uh, she said, "Okay, Ron, see you tomorrow," and patted me on the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so I, the, le- the, lesson was, if you know, if you're going to direct, you know, do your job, be prepared, and, and you have to be, you know, you have to be, you have to be fearless. And uh, a couple years later, when I was directing Cocoon, feeling similarly intimidated by this esteemed group, you know, having the Betty Davis experience behind me was, uh, you know, was v- very helpful.
1: Part of uh, the task of being a moderator and interviewing an Academy Award-winning director is knowing when to say uh, the end. Um, And let's end on that story, and let's end further, since his name was already invoked once, with a Capra-esque thought. Um, You don't want to envision, as lovers of films, uh, having lived in America these past several decades, in an America without the work of our friend, Ron Howard. Join (laughs) me. Thank (laughs) you.
0: Very kind. Thank you. you. What a pleasure.